Sometimes I prepare a message and it just is like, yeah, this is exactly what I talk about. It's easy. I just, everything happens nice and friendly. Like this is a message where I have read more academic articles from more diverse points of view and come to like very little hard conclusions than I think just about any message I've ever prepared. Uh, so I spent the week, like I've been trying to go out of my way to intentionally find voices that are not just kind of, I know it sounds a bit overly woke, but old white men. Um, so I've been looking for more kind of, uh, especially more like Asian women and or African women, like people who have a radically different cultural bias that they bring to the text. Because the cultural bias that has been brought to most of theology has been a European-American white, from written from a position of power and privilege, uh, like so, and it does influence the way that we read things. The problem with that is that there is also a huge pendulum swing in the other direction. So when you're looking for more like diverse voices, you often find really extreme voices on the other side that are that are the kind of woke that the you know the the right wing side gets angry at, like where they're just desperate to find a way to say make the Bible say something. It, probably doesn't say. So I have read a whole bunch of things. So I'll give you a little heads up. I'm going to talk about the Phoenician woman that Jesus calls a dog. So there were a lot of opinions about this. Um, so I, you know, I went to all the kind of regular places that I go to find answers to this. And then I went to all of the academic places to find answers about this. Uh, so I'm going to give you a few different kind of perspectives on this. Uh, in the hope that you will be able to be inspired in some way from this text. So I'm going to read it to you. It's in Matthew and in Mark. I'm going to, it's not very long, so I'm going to read through both because both versions have slightly different kind of accounts, but they are very clearly talking about the same story. So we'll start in Matthew uh, 15, verse 21. It says, Jesus left that place and went off to the district of I should have looked this up. Um, I'm not sure if it's Tyre or Tyre. Does anyone know? No one knows? I didn't look it up. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, uh, a Canaanite woman from those parts came out and shouted, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is demon-possessed. She is in a bad way. Jesus, however, said nothing at all to her. His disciples came up. Please send her away, they asked. She's shouting after us. I was only sent, replied Jesus, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The woman, however, came and threw herself down at his feet. Master, she said, please help me. It isn't right, replied Jesus, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I know, master, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. You've got great faith, haven't you, my friend? replied Jesus. All right, let it be as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. Hey, see, so do you want to turn the main amp down so that I'm not amplified in here? No one wants to. I don't need to be yelling extra loud because of the amplification. Okay. Now we're in Mark. So we did the Matthew one. Should have done them the other way around. Matthew probably copied from Mark. Um, Mark 7. Verse 21, uh, sorry, 24 to 30. It says, Jesus got up. Now I'm reading from the, uh, what is it? The Bible for everyone. Uh, the New Testament section of that translation was done by uh, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. Uh, I quite like it. And 
I find that because I've read it so many times in like NIV, having a slightly different version forces me to read it properly instead of just glossing over it. So that's if you're wondering why the text is a little bit more different, that's why. Okay, so Mark 7, 24 to 30. Jesus got up, left that place and went to the region of Tyre. See, now I'm saying Tyre instead of Tyre. I can't make up my mind. Um, I could look it up. I just didn't. I've read the whole thing in Greek several times in the last 24 hours. Definitely didn't check that though. When he took up residence in a, uh, uh, when he took up residence in a house, he didn't want anyone to know, but it wasn't possible for him to remain hidden. On the contrary, news of him had once reached a woman who had a young daughter with an unclean spirit. She came and threw herself down at his feet. She was Greek, a Syrophoenician by race. And she asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The children have to eat first, Jesus replied. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, master, she said, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs that the children drop. Well said, replied Jesus. Off you go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. All right, so there's... There's a lot going on here. Uh, so I'm going to start with like the way that they used to interpret this a long time ago. Uh, so when we look at church fathers, um, uh, like uh, I think Jerome was one of them in particular who wrote about this. Um, they, they had a tendency to interpret things in an allegorical way, in a metaphoric way. So they said, no, 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 what's really going on here is, is that it's telling us a story about something altogether different. So it may not even be a real story of what happened. It's a story that we're using to portray a picture of something else. So the offensiveness of this text to our modern reading was kind of avoided because it was a metaphor. Uh, so in their version of this, the woman represents a proselyte, a, a convert to Christianity who is petitioning for her child. So she is. Uh, so the child then is representing all of the Gentiles. So all of the Gentiles are bound up by a demon and they can't make it to Jesus. But she goes to Jesus to petition on behalf of all the Gentiles, kind of as a representation um, of, of the one petitioning on our behalf. So the woman represents the convert petitioning for the child who represents the, all of the Gentiles. Uh, and the geographical distance between this conversation and the children um, or the Gentiles is a uh, reflection uh, of how the possessed... Uh, what have I got here in my notes? how the Gentiles themselves are not going to experience Jesus because he's in Israel mostly. This is this little story where he nips up into Tyre and Sidon and then he cruises across the Caesarea Philippi. This is the only time that we're really sure Jesus left Israel. This is the furthest away that he ever got when he got to Caesarea Philippi. This. So this is like a rare thing for him to head out to the Gentiles. There are one or two other times I'll but this is a very rare thing. So the distance between this woman and her child, who was a long way off in bed, demon-possessed, um, this is an allegory of how the Gentiles are not going to be near Jesus. But they will be near his word. So the, it's weird, that's, but this is how they like to do interpretation back then. Finally, the, the children at the master's table are a picture of Israel, uh, and the table is a picture of the Holy Scriptures. And the Gentiles, well, we get to be dogs in that part of the story. And the bread is the gospel. 
so it's an allegory about the 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 Jews sitting or the, the you know the Jews sitting at the table of the word of God and the gospel kind of slips off onto the ground and the Gentiles are allowed to have it as well. So that's the picture that we get from very early kind of interpretation of this passage. Okay, at the other end of the spectrum entirely, when we go to the hyperwoke end of the spectrum, um, we get people who are desperate to find fault with Jesus. Uh, like they are just so keen to make Jesus the bad guy some in this story. Uh, and they are also keen to make the disciples bad guys in this story. Uh, so they take the most uncharitable reading possible and they try to amplify the offensiveness of this text. And they paint a story where Jesus is a typical first century male, uh, which means that he's full of resentment and racism towards this uh, host- and hostility towards this Gentile woman. Um, so they, and they present her as a downtrodden, harassed, uh, sexualized, unprivileged, humiliated victim who first gets ignored and then gets insulted and then gets shamed and belittled for the grave crime of trying to see her daughter set free from bondage. So they paint this picture where Jesus is a chauvinist pig and where she is this uh, total victim. For these interpreters, the woman then becomes a, a prophet of sorts who cleverly rebukes Jesus for his culturally conditioned racism and sexism and changes his mind so that he now has a different attitude towards the Gentiles. And they, they believe that this signaled an entire shift in his ministry where he would then reach out to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Now, I think it's a very long bow to draw to paint Jesus out to be a racist and chauvinist leader. I just don't see it. I can understand why some people would desperately want that to be true. And they really love the idea. They say, we always see Jesus as son of God in all his radiance and glory, but we never see him as Jesus, the human being. And they they paint this as a picture of Jesus as the human being where he changes his mind, where he goes and he takes his racist and prejudiced and sexist worldviews that he adopted as a human being. And they have been transformed because of the cleverness of this woman. Now, again, I'm presenting to you the most extreme version. There are versions of that that are less extreme that, are, you know, that are, are not that offensive to me. But the idea that Jesus is just some kind of sexist, racist um, pig because of his culture and then that changes because of this interaction seems inconsistent with the idea of Jesus being the perfect representation of a loving God. So that narrative may fit for some people, doesn't work for me. All right, there are a few other ways that people try to kind of knock the sharp uh, edges off this story. Uh, so one guy, a guy named Archie France, who's written heaps of academic textbooks, uh, he presents Jesus as a very wise teacher. And I quote, he says, who allows and indeed incites his pupil to mount a victorious argument against the foil of his own reluctance. So he basically says it's a setup. The barb is presented as a test of faith and the woman um, overcomes this test of faith and as a result, it sets an example for his disciples who are thick-headed uh, and also um, shows us something about the future salvation of the Gentiles. So in this story, Jesus is a clever, wise teacher and he knows that this woman will rise to the occasion. Now, others highlight that the original language used here, uh, that when we translate this to be dog which is quite offensive, especially to 
uh, in this context, the, the dogs were very offensive. But when you look more closely, you see that the word dog is actually a diminutive word. It's not like a rabid dog on the street. It's like a little puppy. So maybe it's talking about a lap dog um, in a much more uh, endearing kind of way and not a uh, rabid dog on the street kind of way. Uh, so an another guy, so we have William Barclay, he, he says, and I quote, we can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus's face and the compassion in his eyes robbed the words of all insult and bitterness. Uh, and again, maybe that's going being too easy on Jesus. It's trying to soften this to the point where there's no offense at all. Um, and But to be fair, Jesus commends this woman as having great faith. Uh, you know, it says that, that she has mega faith. Uh, that's, so, you know, that's a big deal. The only other time it commends someone on their faith was the Gentile, again, Gentile centurion. Uh, it uses a different word, but it talks also of his great faith. Uh, so Jesus, obviously, if he was deeply, resentfully racist and sexist, the turnaround time for him to say, you have fantastic faith and I'm going to heal your daughter is very quick. Um, in fact, the speed of Jesus' turnaround would indicate to me that probably not so racist and chauvinist. But there is definitely something going on here in this text. Um, there, are, there are those who also who seek, in the Matthew version of this, you, you would have seen how the disciples said, send her away. So there are some who try to soften that bit as well. Uh, and probably rightly so, the word that, they, uh, that it uses there for send away is apoluthsin. Um Apoluthsin is the same word that we use to, uh, it means, literally means to set free. Uh, so I don't know why um, most modern commentaries and translators have chosen to still say send her away. But the word itself definitely can and often is translated as set free. So it's equally as likely in my view, and I'll explain why I think it's been changed, but equally as likely in my view that, this, that the disciples really did say, this woman is petitioning, can you please just set her daughter free? They're not saying, can you make her go away because I hate her and she's annoying me and she's a woman and she's a Gentile and we don't want her here. They're saying, wow, this woman is really pushing in hard. Can you please heal her daughter? Uh, now, the reason that I think that's been changed is because the Catholics love that version. The Catholics said this is an argument for the intercession of the saints. This is why we should pray to the saints because they are petitioning, and this is an example of the saints petitioning Jesus on behalf of the woman, and it's why we should also pray to the saints so that they would petition Jesus on our behalf. So... Protestantism comes in and they very quickly change this back again. In fact, Luther preached about this and said, this is dumb. It definitely doesn't mean intercession of the saints is okay. So there's a bit of a medieval theological squabble going on here, which is why our Bibles say the disciples sent, wanted her to go away. And the, the more historical Catholic version says that the disciples were more gracious and wanted Jesus to heal her, do her daughter. Bit of a, a weird one in there. So the question is, what do I bring to the text when I want to translate it? So when I come to any Bible text, I kind of bring two things that I think are tremendously important to our understanding. Uh, so the first one is simply context. No Bible verse is written in isolation. It's in the middle of a series of other scriptures, in the middle of a book that was written for a reason to a people in a time for a purpose. And it's part of a broader narrative. So I want to look at uh, the canonical context, which says, where does this fit in the Bible? Or it's salvation context. Where does it fit in the story of salvation history? Or where does it fit in a historical context in terms of when it was written or by who it was written or the people it was written to? 
what was going on in the geography. I think the geography is important in this. I'll explain why shortly. Uh, so the literary context, was it a letter? Was it a poem? Was it a um, mythology? Was it, how was it written? All of these questions of context can help us to understand what's going on. The other thing that I think is important is what we call the hermeneutical lens, how we choose to interpret. Uh, so in, the, in this verse, the Catholics chose to interpret this in a way that obviously strengthened their view of the saints and the perseverance of the saints or the, uh, the intercession of the saints, sorry. Uh, and the Protestants then came along and they chose to interpret it through their lens. So the broad lens that I use when I interpret scripture is that God looks like Jesus. That is my fundamental worldview. When I read the scripture, God, it's, you know, because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the perfect representation of God, that he is the shiniest bit of God's shininess. Uh, it says he's the radiance of God's glory, but I like shiniest bit of his shininess. I think that's cool. Um, Jesus shows me exactly what God is like. So it means that anytime I see a picture of God that falls short of what is clearly revealed in Christ, I have to say, is something else going on? What am I missing that is distorting this? Because often we get pictures of God that are, uh, uh, are shadows, that are, you know, like not the full picture, but Jesus is the full picture. So my hermeneutical lens, God looks like Jesus. And then I also like to add, that God is love. I think some people's hermeneutical lens starts with God is holy. But God was love before he was holy. To be holy is to be set apart. He wasn't set apart till he made us. And before he made us, he was there in the beginning. Uh, in Before the beginning, he was love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a triune God makes no sense at all, but there was love. God is love. And God is like Jesus. So that's the lens that I bring to my interpretation. Which is why I also can't really accept that Jesus was, you know, a xenophobic sexist. I just can't accept that because it's not loving. It's not consistent with a God that created all people and dies for all people and loves all people. It's not consistent with Jesus' other behavior towards Gentiles or his behavior towards the people who are cast out. It's not consistent with Jesus' other behavior towards women, where he continues to promote and give place to and see and hear women and allow them access and not diminish or demean them in any way. Greg Boyd uses this uh, illustration that I think is really helpful. He says uh, that he imagines a scenario where he uh, walks out of a shop or something and he looks down the street and he sees his wife kicking a homeless man. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty normal stuff, right? Uh, except the problem is, is that he's known his wife for decades and he is absolutely abundantly confident in her character and, and that she is not a person that would kick a homeless man. That, and so because he knows her, he has to assume, however unlikely, something else is going on that would explain this particular scenario. However unlikely. Even if it means that they're shooting some weird video. I don't know, maybe they're doing a reenactment of the, um, the, the Good Samaritan and she's beating the guy up at the beginning of that reenactment. What, however unlikely the story is, he has to believe there's a way to explain it because he knows his wife's character. So when I say, I, I just can't accept this about Jesus, it's because the, the overwhelming evidence of the New, the New Testament is a testimony of Jesus treating women in a way that was respectful and honorable and beautiful, not in a way that was chauvinist and sexist. So I have to believe something else is going on. Now, it's likely 
that some of what of the other things I've said are true. It is likely, in my opinion, that the disciples weren't just being awful to this woman, although they probably, you know, there are a lot of times where they just were tired. Jesus is literally, oh, wait, oh, that's more context up. I'll get to that in a minute. You know, so I don't think the disciples are probably as bad as they, as they come off. Um, certainly, um, only one of these versions records the disciples behaving like that. But I definitely don't think Jesus is the bad guy in this story. So let's look at the context then. I've already, so I've explained how I see Jesus. Now let's look at some other context here because I think it is important. So Tyre, or Tyre, so picture the Mediterranean Sea. So we have the sea is kind of like here and then down along here we have Jerusalem kind of just inland a bit here. Oh yeah, I'm doing back the front for you, aren't I? Okay, so if we head up north though, just go north. Start with, yeah, that's kind of where I think all the Jesus stuff happens and go north. Okay, so if we go north, above Jerusalem, we, we have um, Galilee, and Nazareth is in the middle of that. So we have Galilee, which is right next to, shockingly, the Sea of Galilee, or, uh, or the, um, what is it, Lake Tiberias now, I think they call it up. So that's kind of all of where Jesus grew up, and that's the Galilee-Nazareth thing. If we go north even further, um, then about, what, 50 kilometers north of Nazareth, we get to Tyre, and it's right on the coast, but the region of Tyre, it covers a, a really wide area. So it was like a nation state. And if you keep going further up, it, historically it was, if you keep going up another 35 kilometers, you get to Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were both port cities and they were loaded. They were rich. They were sophisticated. They were Greek um, cities of affluence and trade. Is it modern day Lebanon? Yes. So that's modern day. Sidon is like 40 kilometers south or 35 kilometers south of Beirut. Um, so that if you if you think if you've seen a map where Jono and Natalie are, all of this is taking place in that area. Okay, so the region though is not part of the Israel kind of space. This is Gentile space. Now it's likely that in Tyre, which was lower, there was a Jewish population. But by the time you get to Sidon, and then if you head uh, like Jesus did, he head then to the um, what is it? To the east across the Caesarea Philippi. Over there, that was like the pagan center of the world at the time. There was like serious paganism going on in Caesarea Philippi. It doesn't say Jesus even went into these towns because like they were not great places for Jews. It was a dangerous place for Jews even. There was animosity between the Gentiles and the Jews that had been going back for generations. So when it says Jesus went to the region of these places, he probably kind of didn't go into the main city itself. So as recently as 40 BC, the people of Tyre had invaded Galilee. And then I think it was um, Herod the Great kicked them out again. But they were like within what? That's like 40 years of Jesus' birth. They were at war and killing each other. These are not people that get along. Uh, the prophet Joel, uh, if you look in, in, um, in Joel 4, 4 to 6, he rebukes the people of Tyre and Sidon because they are selling the Israelites as slaves. There was a big slave market and they were the guys who were selling the Israelites as slaves. They do not get along. In Acts 12.20, we find out that the people uh, of Tyre and Sidon had negotiated with uh, Herod Agrippa 
to get food supplies. So they were obviously uh, wealthy and affluent, but had poor uh, and didn't have a lot of food. So the, the region of Galilee was the breadbasket of Tyre and Sidon. That's where they got their food. Um, and so they had like a, uh, an agreement with Herod to take food from the Nazarites and the, uh, sorry, from the uh, Nazareth and Galilean region for their own people. So to say that there was a fair bit of animosity between Jesus' people and the people he was now kind of hiding out among is an understatement. The Galilean peasants had been habitually ripped off and taken advantage of by the rich economic powers of Sidon and Tyre for generations. This is a situation of historical racial tension that was really serious. So if we keep going back, we, we get back to the biblical cock, we go all the way back to the 9th century BE, uh, BC, there is another kind of weird twist in this story. So we have the prophet Elijah, who I suspect you've heard of. Uh, he traveled to the region of Tyre and Sidon during a, a famine, a drought in the land. He went there, met with an, uh, a, a, um, a pagan um, woman there, and there was that exchange where he said, give me some bread and give me oil and water and all that. And then she ended up with uh, unlimited oil and bread uh, and water or flour or whatever it is for the whole duration of the drought. So he went there with, to this widow in Zarephath, I think it was, uh, which is this region. And, and then later on, he went back again and her son had died. And so Elijah raises his son from the dead. See, and in this, we have this kind of prophetic parallelism, this, where Jesus then turns up and goes to um, this woman and raises her and frees her woman from a, uh, this woman's daughter from a demon. So there is a kind of uh, Jesus redoing the steps of Elijah, which then, why, when we get to you know, a few uh, chapters later, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi and, and Peter, they say, who do you think I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah. Because he's been doing the things that Elijah did in that region. So it makes sense for them to think that. So the Gospels of Matthew and Mark show us how Jesus is reenacting this story of a Phoenician woman being, finding access to God's grace and God's mercy. All right, let's go back. Mark 7, so we're just in the, in, the, in the section of Scripture just prior. So we started reading from Mark 7, 24. In Mark 7, 1 to 20 odd, Jesus is having a big barney with the Pharisees. No surprises there. In fact, they have traveled from Jerusalem. A whole bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the Lord traveled from Jerusalem up to where he was in Galilee just so that they could have a fight. Uh, so everyone, they were all teed up and Jesus is having a go with them and saying, you guys think you're clean, but you're not clean, you're dirty. And, you know, like it was a bit of a, a stoush. If you really want to look at Jesus looking like he's calling people names, that's a better section of scripture to go to. Um, and then because he's been so mean to them, him and his, uh, and his team, they all head up north into, into Tyre and Sidon to hide. That's what he's doing. He's gone up there to hide because he's like, maybe I was a bit too rough with them and it's gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get killed here instead of where I'm meant to later on. So I'm going to run away. So he runs away up into Tyre and Sidon and he's trying to hide. He's trying to get a break. He's trying to get away. It literally says he's hiding, but people know that he's there. So they find him. I don't know if you've ever done that. If you're a parent, you're like hiding on the toilet just trying to have five minutes of peace. 
Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, I know that you know that. Or when you're in the shower, you think, for goodness sakes, in the shower at least, I should be safe. Oh, Ari was here before. I was going to make fun of her. She interrupted me a lot the other day when I was trying to have a shower. He's just trying to get some peace and quiet. He just wants to be left alone. They've gone and they're hiding in this house in, in the region of Tyre. And this woman finds him. Now, this wasn't his first trip there. Some people, when they're trying to make the argument that this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry where all of a sudden he has this miraculous intervention and he realizes that the Gentiles can be saved as well. Nonsense. The, the, this, the Bible is very clear. When he sent out his 12 disciples earlier on, he said to them, only go to the Jews because we're going to the Jews now. Don't go to the Gentiles um, because we've got to go to the Jews first because there are promises about the Jews and to the Jews and we've got to fulfill all of that stuff first. And then... We will go to Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It very much ends up, Jesus always had a plan for this to not be an isolated Israel, Israelite kingdom, but it to be a world kingdom. And so then we have the incident with the, the Roman centurion, again, a Gentile, a guy he should hate, but he treats this guy with great honor and respect and love because of his faith and he heals um, the centurion's servant. Uh, there was another time Jesus went into the area of the, um, the Gerasenes. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I haven't got it in my notes. He went up and, you know, the scene with the, do uh, with the pigs, with Legion, the, the, the demons um, whose name were Legion. They were many. Um, that's in Gentile land. We know that because there were a whole bunch of pigs there. There are no pig farmers in Israel, I promise you. Pigs are unclean. So Jesus goes there and this crazy man runs out, demon-possessed and naked and dirty. Uh, and Jesus uh, casts the demons uh, into the pigs and the pigs go and drown themselves off a cliff. Uh, and you know what the people there, straight after this event, the man is like completely restored and he's like, I'm going to go tell everyone in all of the Decapolis, all of the, the 10 cities of this region. He says, I'm going to go tell everyone because I've been set free. And everyone else says, go away. Oh my goodness, you're destroying our economy. Um, they're very upset with him. They want the pigs. So they, the Gentiles run Jesus out of town basically. But this one bloke goes and tells everyone about this guy who can cast out demons. And obviously Jesus' reputation precedes him because then he heads into the Gentile territory again. And this woman hears and she says, there's a guy who casts out demons and my daughter is demon possessed. I must find him. And so Jesus got up and left that place and went to the region of Tyre. And when he took up residence in a house, he didn't want anyone to know, but it wasn't possible for him to remain hidden. On the contrary, News of him at once reached a woman who had a young daughter with an unclean spirit. Imagine you are a, uh, a person whose child is, is being oppressed in this way. You would have sought out everything. She, you would have sought out every possible way to, to remedy this. And you'd heard this rumor of a rumor of a guy that can cast out demons. And then all of a sudden, he comes into a, a region or a town near you. Everyone's like, oh, we got to go and... We got to go and I think church history, if you look deep enough, they do actually have names for this woman. I think it's just, Justa, Justa, and I can't remember her daughter's name. It's the, the Catholics are all keen about it. So there is like a, a, a Catholic book by, 
I can't remember his name who wrote it. That's terrible. Uh, but they write about this, this lady and her faith and her daughter. But um, they, and they well, we've got to go and talk to, we've got to find Justin because Jesus is around. So that, that's what happens. They find her. Uh, and she came and threw herself down at his feet. She was Greek, a Syrophoenician by race. This is the thing that Mark does a lot. He does this weird repetition thing where he tells you and then he tells you again. Um, Jesus got up and left that place uh, and he went to the region of Tyre. So it's again and again and again. Uh, took up residence in a house. Um, uh, but yeah, so he then tells us she's Greek, which is to say she's not a Jew. She's Greek, which is to say she's part of this richer, more affluent, more worldly society. And ethnically, we can see that she is Syrophoenician. Thank you, Mark, for giving us all that detail. And she asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The children have to eat first, Jesus replied. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus has escaped the centurions, uh, sorry, the, um, the Pharisees, and he's gone up into Tyre. This woman hears he's coming. She comes in. And she pleads with him to heal her daughter of this affliction, of this demon. Uh, so the most interesting stuff that I read when I was researching this passage was from a, a guy named, now I'm not sure, uh, in, Singa in Singapore, this guy's name is Pauling Sun. Would it be Sun or Sun? Sun. So Pauling Sun, who is a professor of biblical studies at the Baptist Theological Seminary of Singapore, he presents a, a, a different perspective on this that I hadn't read that fits the context. And that makes me happy when I find something that I haven't heard before and it also fits the context. It's like, ah, there's something interesting to talk about, something interesting to learn. And then knowing this, I then looked it up more and more and more and I could find, you know what? I actually mostly agree with what this guy had to say. Uh, so he presents this woman, this Syrophoenician woman, not in the hyperwoke way of saying that she is a downtrodden widow who is, you know, just like uh, at the bottom of the social order. He flips this entirely. He says, no, 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 this, this woman is Greek and wealthy and powerful and has agency and capacity. She turns up and she is a representation of the colonizing oppressive power that has been taking advantage of the Galileans for generations. Now, to be fair, the Israelites came in and killed all the Canaanites before that. So this, no one's got clean hands in this. It's been war and devastation forever in this region. But at this period of time, Jesus was literally part of the peasantry of Galilee. When he says to this woman, it's not right to take the food off the table of the little children and give it to the dogs. He's literally saying, you've already stolen the food out of my own mouth. Do you really now want to command me to do these things? See, Jesus isn't, it's not like a super harsh rebuke. Maybe there is some endearment. Maybe it is the little puppy, but he's saying, come on, it's a bit rich. He is reflecting, obviously, the animosity of all of the other disciples and all of the other Jewish people, especially the ones who grew up in Nazareth, especially the ones who were in that Galilean region that were taken advantage of. Instead of seeing Jesus as the dominating patriarchal, androcentric colonialist in this situation, we need to flip the thing around. This is what polling argues and see that there is an opposite social power imbalance. She is from an elite economic class that has habitually taken advantage of the peasantry of Galilee. 
It could very well be Jesus' lived experience of having the bread taken out of the mouths of the children of his villages and people. And then Jesus uses a proverbial phrase. Later on, this phrase is used in the Talmud in Jewish um, writings. So we know that this was a a proverbial statement, which also takes away some of the sting. When you're saying something which has been said a hundred times before, and it's a proverb that everyone's heard before, it's not about her. He's not saying, well, you're a dog. He's using a common uh, uh, phrase or or, um, turn of phrase. He's calling out this oppressive power this colonizing power that this woman represents, he's not punching down, he's punching up. And as all comedians would agree, you're allowed to punch up. You're allowed to make fun of the people who have more power than you, just not the people who have less power than you. And in this context, it's possible. Again, it's just a, it's just a, you know, I'm not saying this is the absolute word on this, but it's possible that Jesus is not talking down to this woman from a place of power. He's talking up to her from, because she is actually in a place of power. Almost all commentators agree that that the, the fact that this is a woman is of no consequence. It's because it's a real story about a real person. It could just as easily have been a man. Her gender has got nothing to do with this. It's 100% about the fact that she is Greek and wealthy and from a region that has racial and economic disparity and conflict with Jesus' people. The woman's response does not dispute Jesus' accusation. She doesn't say, that's not fair. She says, yes, I agree. But the crumbs also fall on the floor. She accepts this barb, this attack, this accusation of sorts. And she still says, can I have your help, please? Her humility and her implied repentance in that interaction and her endearing faith through this whole thing opened the door for Jesus to free her daughter. See, she isn't simply a representative person. She is also a mother who has an oppressed child who is desperately seeking freedom for her child. According to all worldly wisdom, Jesus had every reason to hate this woman, more so than what we realize, not just because of being a a patriarch or not because he's a chauvinist or a racist, but because there are very real, honest reasons from his own lived experience for why he should not like this woman or want to help her. But he sees her faith and he frees her. He has mercy on her. Are Jesus' words harsh? Yeah, probably. Just as his words against the religious folk were harsh. But I think that that it makes more sense to see this the way that Paul and Sun Sun has represented it. This is a situation loaded with lots of historical racial tension and Jesus cuts straight to the heart of that problem and she responds with faith. And we've got to remember these aren't just historical memoirs as well. These were stories collated by Matthew and Mark for a specific people for a specific time for a specific purpose. And part of that purpose was because they knew that there was tension even within the early days of Christendom between the Jews who had become Christians, and the Greeks who had become Christians. We see that all through the book of Acts. We see this tension where the, the Jews and the, gen, and the, um, and the Hellenistic um, Christians were at each other. They couldn't seem to figure this out. So here we have a story in both Matthew and in Mark that says, you know what? We need to figure this out. 
Jesus accepts this woman, a Gentile rich woman, all the things that you say you hate, he accepts her and he loves her. He shows mercy to her and grace to her. It shows that Jesus understands that tension and he understands everything, all of the history. He understands all of the tension. Yet still he moves beyond that to a place of compassion. This is part of what they call the salvation history. This is part of the story of how the Gentiles become part of the kingdom of God. The other angle that I think is important is the one that Greg Boyd discusses. And that's where he says, again, like I talked about a few weeks ago, this is an act of prophetic theater. Jesus is reenacting the story of Elijah, but he is also uh, reenacting uh, or creating a prophetic statement. So just like turning the tables over in the temple was a prophetic statement or getting baptized was a prophetic statement about how the Israelites in the past um, they came out of bondage and into the promised land through the river Jordan. So the baptism was Jesus saying, we're coming out of that old covenant and kingdom into a new one. We're starting something new. So there was a prophetic declaration in his baptism. And there was a prophetic declaration and he's turning over the tables. And there is a prophetic declaration in this as well. In the, um, in the Old Testament, the, the Israelites killed the Canaanites because of their worship of, of demons. But here, Jesus frees the child from, her dom- from the dominion of this demon and has grace and mercy on the Canaanite woman. It's a reversal of the old policy for a new policy. It's a prophetic declaration. So there is a theatre aspect of this as well. It's not meant to be a... Jesus obviously had in his heart to love and to show compassion again and again and again and again, we have that testimony. So I think it's fair to assume the best of Jesus here, not the worst. Humility and faith open the door for this um, woman to experience the kingdom of God. I think there is surely something that we can learn from that. There are many Christians who just like the disciples and just like Jesus could have, uh, carry deep prejudices towards people, either racial or because of cultural reasons or because of um, other like lifestyle choices and things like that. There are deep prejudices that Christians hold. And some of them are pretty fair. Maybe there is a, a person or a people group or a family member or someone who has persecuted you, who has treated you like crap, who there is awful tension that has existed for a long time. And Jesus shows us that we need to be willing to move beyond that. The other lesson in this scripture is that there are certain things that are promised. You see, it is promised that the Gentiles will be saved. That was a given. That was going to happen. But it wasn't yet. But this woman pressed into that idea of the kingdom being available to her and to her daughter. She pushed into it and got it a little bit early. And I think there are a whole bunch of injustices that we say, well, one day your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. One day the kingdom of God will come and those who uh, weep will be comforted and those who, you know, like one day those things will happen, but now we can be apathetic. But instead we can learn from this woman, no, to hell with that. Let's push through for the kingdom of God now, not later. When you look at people in history like uh, Wilberforce, 
It was an inevitability that one day the slaves will be set free. Jesus came to set people free. But he said, no, damn it. We're going to see that happen now, not later. And he kept pushing in and he kept pushing in. And that, that kingdom reality broke through sooner because of his persistence. So where is it in our lives that there is a kingdom reality that should be pushing through that we need to persist in, that we need to persist in prayer, that we need to persist in compassion, that we need to persist in mercy and love, that we need to persist in in order to see the kingdom of God come now, not later. What change do we need to seek out for our own lives instead of putting off? Just one or two other things that I think are important. I don't want to be like the Pharisees and religious institutions that Jesus ran away from. See, Jesus is he's, he's preaching the kingdom and then these people come to oppose him. So he just says, you know what? We're going to take a break. We're going north. Um, going to check out the snow. It snows, would you believe, in that region? We're going to go up there. Then we'll head into the mountains, check out the snow. It'll be awesome. We're going to have a weekend away. He needed to get away from the religious folks. And I think there are a whole bunch of religious institutions and a whole bunch of religious nonsense that Jesus is trying to get away from. And I want to make sure that that's not uh, the kind of church or the kind of kingdom that we represent, the kind that Jesus is fleeing from. And finally, I want to make sure that I see people for who they are, not just the stereotypes and caricatures. Instead of just saying, oh, Jesus with another woman, it must be another prostitute. It must be another lower class person. It must be another person who's subjugated and whatever. I don't want to see everyone as a stereotype or a caricature. I want to see people and understand them and listen to them and honestly be aware of their vulnerability and their truth. When we talk to people, hear them. I want to go beyond the surface interaction when I'm with people. Because I think the doors of the kingdom of God are wide open, even if we think that they're like this. They're wide open. Even to the people that the religious want to keep out. So I would rather be like this woman who persists than like the disciples who are meant to be Jesus' followers. She shows them what real faith is like. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you desire to give us mercy. And I pray that we would be bearers of your great mercy and your great love. That we would hear people honestly and truly. That we would see their vulnerability and be kind. I pray that we would set aside our prejudices, our bigotry, our cultural nonsense, our historical beefs, even the things where we get to feel a righteous in our anger, I pray we would put those things aside and choose compassion and love and sorrow if needs be. I pray that we would persist and see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And I thank you that this story shows us uh, of your great love for all people, even if they don't fit into the classifications that we think uh, define people who are in. I thank you that you that you went to the people who who we wouldn't even go to. I pray your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen.